Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. I'm Angela. And I am Kerry. The Yoda of podcasting. Oh, Kerry I am. <laughs> so, yes, so... This is a special podcast. Actually, it's no different from any other week for you listening. But for us recording, it's very different because sat in front of me, not on a screen, like real person, is Kerry. We are actually in the same room. The lights are low. There's a glow of the mobile phone. It's very romantic, I have to say. I should just read you. I drove all night again. (laughs) You should. What we really need is like the moonlight just coming through this window here and then then we'd be sorted. No, but there's supposed to be a thunderstorm, Kerry. There might be like a lightning electrical storm. Oh, that'd make it and even the better. Wind howling and you're like, your big <laughs> hair blowing. You're getting me excited, aren't you? <laughs> we won't talk about online dating. I've been told I'm not allowed to. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Mobile app dating, even. I sound really old. Online dating. Um, okay, so we've got a fucking action-packed show tonight what can i say what can i say um we are going to not do a themed show as such although i I suppose you could say it's girl power yeah they are sort of linked to each other in that sort of sense a little bit yeah so this evening i'm going to talk about share and on my notes it does say the early years but that's not completely true shocking that you wouldn't manage to keep it you know. Well, I just want to say, don't be afraid, Kerry, that there's four pages I'm of notes. I'm terrified by right? the four pages of notes, can I just because say? Because I'm going to skim read. She says that now. Right, four She's pages She's going to make lots of mistakes. I'm going to um, try not to die laughing for 15 minutes this um, time. But yes, yeah, so I'm going to talk about Cher. And new music-wise, I'm actually going to... I'm actually... actually I'm actually going to play something. actually going to play a song. Not going to pretend. I'm not going to pretend. I'm actually going to play some music this week because I've never done it before. I am going to play a band that I've been a fan of for for quite some time now. And we became friends on social media a few years back, um, on Twitter, actually. And the band are called Crystal Furs, and they are from Portland. And I'll be playing a song off their album that they released this year. So more about that later. Kerry, who are you talking about? I... I'm going to talk about one of my childhood music loves. So I can remember this was a probably one of the first bands I kind of got into in terms of music when I was literally in primary school, which is the Spice Girls. If I wasn't drinking some wine, I really wanted to interrupt with something that was probably not that funny. <laughs> what was okay. it? What were you going to say? I, I was trying to. I was, when you were saying a fan of, I was going to Peter Andre <laughs> or Bewitched. No, I mean for the for when I was born and when when I grew up, it's pretty obvious that the Spice Girls were going to be one of the big first music things for me. I think, um, so I've had a bit of fun kind of finding out a bit more about them today, and I've got okay. some fun facts for you. Um, so I'm going to talk about the Spice Girls, and then I'm going to play um some new music from another fab band who are good friends of ours through a multitude of connections, um, Scarlet. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Big shout out to Jesse. Love yeah. you. Massive. It was a weird one, actually, a weird connection that happened where I had just joined Bug Eye, obviously, and just kind of came back to England, joined Bug Eye, started a new job, was at training for the new job, 
got chatting to Jesse and then realised there was this whole connection with the band and we were all playing at the same festival at the weekend at the end of the training yeah, week and yeah. it was all no, really known, bizarre. No, Jessie for ages. I think she's super, super talented and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've, you've, you've picked her yeah. to, to play, well, her band. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what are we going to start with? Well, I don't, I don't know. And like I was saying, don't be frightened that I've got four pages. Terrified. So I reckon that you should start. Okay. And just let's get through it. Because it's going to be, you know, long. It's really small font <laughs> on these pages as well. It's like, it's, like really she, it's like she's holding like a Bible over there, is but all you, I'm going to say. But, but you know what? This is the story that just keeps giving, right? Uh-huh. The, the one thing is, so I have to, before I start this, I have to say, so Cher, obviously I know who Cher is. And, you know, loved her in film Mermaids, knew about her music, knew about Sonny and Cher, but didn't actually really know like with most of the people we cover actually the backstory to it's it is a common theme or a great deal of detail i'm not someone that ever reads like gossip pages or anything like that so there's a whole heap of stuff that was just like a complete revelation mm-hmm. to me let's let's just say but um I, but i do wonder how many people do know that much about Cher, they might love her music. I reckon there's definitely a number of like diehard fans out there, right? Who of probably course. do know all of this stuff. Of course. But I would say the, but, the yeah. most people are probably like yeah. me or you, who we know the songs. We think you think you know about a person, but actually you don't. Cher was born Sherilyn, not Cher. Didn't know even sure. know. I mean, I if anything, I thought her real name would be less related than that. Do you know no, what I mean? Well, I no, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And she was born on the 20th of May in 1946. Okay. And that was in El Centro in California. And her mother was called Georgia Holt. She was 18 at the time of giving birth to Cher and was a model and sort of bit part sort of actress, I suppose you could say. Uh, She was trying to make it. And her father was a guy called John who was Arminian american sort of truck driver but he had a sort of drug and gambling problem that seemed to just sort of escalate so john being a truck driver was quite absent from from her life but also because of his problems he was quite absent um but you know so Cher didn't really see him when she was growing up to the point that i mean by the time she was 10 months old so not even one so before she could even remember him Mm -hmm. uh her parents were divorced so yeah so her mother was young. Remember, she had Cher at 18. Yeah. And wasn't really prepared for motherhood, let alone being like a, a single parent. So she left Cher for what was supposed to have been a couple of days in a Catholic orphanage. Right. Right. So she could, like, go out and find some work. Mm. But um, she didn't actually go back to the orphanage to get her daughter until two weeks later, wow. by which time the nuns decided, well... She's actually better off here. Mm. And her mother was like, well, no, could I have my daughter back? And scarily, she ended up going through months of, like, a custody battle wow. to get her daughter back. But I suppose it's a case if you can't just drop your child off to an orphanage expecting it to be, like, daycare, free daycare. Well, yeah, I guess right? you can't drop it... Yeah, you can't drop your daughter off for a couple of days and not turn up again for two weeks, right? No, but I don't even think you can drop a child off for a couple of days and that's, like, well, cool. I'd... Do you know what I mean? Can well, yeah. You, I suppose, but I mean, I don't know, presumably that was what was said at the time, right? Well, yes, exactly, but... um, I don't know. Anyway, so she did get her child back, 
and she sort of remained in this kind of state of, you know, she remarried and she divorced several times and she moved her family around the country, including like New York, Texas, California, always starting again, mm. which really just reminds me of the character that Cher plays in Mermaids. Right. Um, of moving her kids around and always starting again. And uh, I feel like I'm, I'm being like, yeah, like I've seen the film, I haven't. Oh, my God. <laughs> Shitting me. You've not seen I've it. Not seen you know, it. I immediately want to stop recording this podcast and like, get on <laughs> Make the sofa, watch it and then we'll come back and watch it. <laughs> when only riders in it. How have you not seen this? I, I haven't seen There's it. nuns involved as well. It's like this is totally like relevant. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> her mother had another child, and Cher kind of always felt like a bit of an outsider mm. in this situation because she had dark skin, dark hair. Her mother had fair skin and blonde hair and so did her sister. And she kind of just felt quite separate from that mm. to the point that um, one time when her, her mother was driving, so I think they might be moving to another location, they were stopped by state patrollers that were like, whose child's that? Oh, really? She's like, it's my child. Mm. You know, they, they really didn't look alike. So she kind of just felt very separate from the situation. Yeah. And who knows whether it was, you know, affected by being left as being that young. Well, yes, probably. Um, or not. But, I mean, that orphan... Well, I do, yeah, who knows? Who knows? But, I mean, she, she certainly feels that that did have an effect on, on her. Her father did return when she was 11 years old and she suddenly felt that she had this connection because her dad was there and he had dark hair and he had dark skin. Sure, she could see... And it was see. suddenly seeing where she came from yeah. and could, could relate to that and connect to that. Mm. But it was really short-lived because her dad still had a drug problem. He was there and it wasn't long until he just like kind of disappeared off okay. again. So I suppose there's that sense of just always being left. Yeah, and of always but, feeling sort of other, I suppose. Yeah. Right? And kind of isolated. Exactly. And they, they were quite a poor family as well. Like there's in some articles that I read as in Cher remembering that, you know, her shoes had broken having to fix them with elastic bands mm. to keep the soles on and, and things like that yeah. and you know going to school is a fucking shit show can you imagine if you have to do that and yeah. go to school like that for sure anyway on to her um school years and i promise i'm not going to do every year of her life but i think this is really important to establish kind of where, how why she is who she yeah, is right? yeah where she came from and how she's kind of developed as a person in and all of these things that have affected her. I, I often think that's like the the most interesting part of doing these stories is quite often that early years stuff because that is usually the stuff you don't know about, right? It's, well, yeah. It's not the stuff that's, that's seen there in the media. Well, that's, and... But that's the thing with Cher that I thought, oh, I'll just do the early years because most of the times with like famous people, the early years are interesting and then it suddenly just turns into... And then like, they were like famous. Like what a friend of ours <laughs> was saying about an artist's biography, she read that it just gets to a stage where it's like, that was interesting and now... It's just, oh, and I'm really successful and I play this show. And I, and I released show. that album and, and I released this yeah, and album and it, this was really successful. Yeah, totally. And it's like, well, that's... Well, that is often the case, yeah. isn't it? Well, no, well, yeah, until years later and then all the other stuff comes out. True. Words, True as well. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is me saying I never read gossip columns. I don't. <laughs> I probably should, right? But, um, yeah, anyway, I just can't be bothered. I'm lazy. Um, so, yeah, so her dad doesn't stick around. So in fifth grade... Cher produced a performance of the musical Oklahoma for her teacher in her class, and she organised a group of girls directing them and choreographer. Doing all of the choreography. Yeah. That's the word. 
Um, but she was unable to convince boys to participate, so she acted the male roles and sang the songs. And she had, by the age of nine, she had a really deep voice mm. for singing anyway, so yeah. it worked incredibly well. But despite all of this, she was incredibly shy. So this was actually quite remarkable that she that she did this at this at this age, because she she kind of lacked confidence. She thought she was ugly. And she really, really suffered from stage yeah. fright, which you'll hear a little bit about about later. Um, and she just she just had this kind of real uncertainty of who she was and where she fitted in the world because she wasn't as she you know I I think she's stunning, um, and you know even before all of the glamour and glitz, you look back at the early photos of her, she was beautiful. Yeah. But she wasn't what was was perceived as aesthetically beautiful. She wasn't one of those blonde Hollywood sure. types. Yeah. So in her mind, that's what she she was thinking she should be. Yeah. But wasn't. Yeah. And that's not the only thing, obviously, that affected her confidence. It's not no, whole, but it, it's a big part of it, isn't loads it? Of like stuff. it's all about that. What what you see as being perceived yeah. as beautiful, and and whether you fit that or not, isn't it? But she also suffered from dyslexia, which at that time totally undiagnosed sure. like much later I think when she was like in her 30s or something like that so she really had problems of reading and just getting her head around numbers so you can only imagine what school life yeah, was yeah. like for her for sure um, to the point that at the age of 16 she dropped out of mm. school and she started to kind of hang around recording studios and I was you know you hear this as in oh they start to hang out at recording studios you know you think well Recording studios today, could you imagine going to like well, yeah. the studio, knocking on the door, going, I'm 16, I'm just going to hang out your studio. They'd be like, fuck off. For sure. I know exactly what you mean. You read stuff like that. It's like, what? how? how? Like, how, how did that happen? Like, what do you mean you hung out <coughs> Yeah, you can't just show up and be like, I'm just going to chill here. I'm just going <laughs> to like, sit on the sofa. Yeah. Anyway, she hung out at recording <laughs> studios. <laughs> as you do. Um, yeah. And when a backing singer did a no-show for a session... Um, due to being stuck in traffic or something like that, Cher stepped in and sang on a record. And this kind of started her kind of entry into the world of music. Before that, she hadn't really considered music Mm -hmm. as being her core passion. She wanted to be an actress. She was obsessed with Audrey Hopburn. Hepburn. That's the one. Audrey Hopburn. Audrey Hopburn. (laughs) Audrey Hopburn. Or for the commoners, hip burn. <laughs> oh, Christ, I'm only halfway through one page. Um, anyway, yes. So, she hung out at studios. She got a back in singing gig, gig on a track. Yeah. But, did you know, and this is song fact, that Cher sang backup vocals on the Ronettes single, Be My Baby, the Phil Spector. No, I did not know section. that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I need to re-listen to that record. Listen out for Cher's voice. And go, I can't hear it. But, you might but yeah, do. You'd be surprised. Just, Sometimes once you know something like that, you can pick stuff like that out. But again, I mean, the thing is, I really didn't know that there was that Phil Spector connection. But this is actually how, you know, enter um, Sonny Bono. Which in my notes, I had to go back and correct because I suddenly started merging the name Sonny and Bono. <laughs> Sonny Bono, fucking hell. <laughs> Right. I merged them into one, and then it became Bonnie. Oh God! Or Bonio. And he's like, "How do I, how do I do this?" I don't know brain? how you do it. It's like a special skill. It's a real special skill. But it was good that I read back over it. And was it like, is. What the? F-? Uh, yeah, because I will literally read out what I've written, like a newscaster that doesn't actually think <laughs> that, about yeah. what they're reading. Anyway, so um, 
He was Phil Spector's protege and Cher and Sonny hung out loads. But he said to her, you know, I'm written, you know, you're not someone I'd ever find attractive. Mm. And he used to joke about like her looks and things like this. Right. But they but it was the thing is like when you see their TV show later and like when they're in love, that they just had this kind of it was it was like school kids have got a crush on each other that just pick on each other. Right, okay. Um, but later it turns a bit Mm. different right but anyway but she says it was like love at first sight but they were not together to begin with and they first met actually on like a double date in a coffee shop but they were both with other people but they became friends and um, they got closer and closer and they started working together and he wrote songs for her originally to be a solo artist but her stage fright was so bad there's no way she could ever have been a solo artist. Right. He, he, they, they became a duet, basically. Yeah. Because it was just not going to happen. Anyway, they fell in love, obviously. They, they got together. And, and for a while, they, you know, he was quite controlling. You hear this quite often in this kind of singer-duet partnership yeah. thing, even with, like, ABBA and, and, and lots, lots of artists, of, of, like, back in the day. But for a while, they were good together. Well, I mean, him... From that, like, first, the start of their relationship, making comments about her looks doesn't bode well, like, immediately makes me think that it's going to go down a bit of a weird controlling part. Also, actually, the fact is that comment come up because she was struggling financially and he said, well, you can come and live with me mm. um, and be my housekeeper, but but don't, there's nothing to worry about. Like, right. I'm not attracted to you. Mm. And they were friends and they used to joke about things. Okay. I suppose that's the point. You know, there's the relationship deteriorated over time and then those things became nasty. Yeah. And he was clearly really controlling and quite unfair. Mm. Um, but that's that's not necessarily how it started out. Anyway, so they got together. Love blossomed. Um, and they're together. And, and originally, and I didn't know this, when they formed as a duet, they were called um, Caesar and Cleo interesting but it was a complete flop like you know they just did not get the attention that they wanted and so um they decided to to kind of reimagine the whole situation and they relaunched themselves as sunny and chair yeah they were like hippie and bohemian and and it was it was actually something that still wasn't an, an immediate success but based on advice of the rolling stones it was like, man, you need to just go to London. There's hardcore fans there. You'll easily be able to build a following. Go to London. Yeah. And so they did go to London. And they were checking into the Hilton Hotel. And they were thrown out because of the way they were dressed. Really? Because they weren't elegant enough. Wow. And this was a fantastic thing to have happened. Because they experienced for the first time what tabloid attacks were like. Yeah. In the sense of, you know, art is thrown out of Hilton Hotel. It was global headlines. Really? And their albums started to sell. Right. <laughs> it was the greatest promotional yeah. shiz that they needed at that time. And also the song um, that, that that was the biggest one from the album is, you know, the famous duet, I've Got You, Babe. Yeah. Which I think now when you listen to it, if it's kind of, you, you're only discovering it for the first time, I don't think you appreciate how almost revolutionary it was as a pop song. mm um, it took kind of Phil Spector's... You remember, he was the protégé of Phil Spector. It took the kind of wall of sound yeah. and chucked it in a hippie cocktail shaker with counterculture and, and all of this laid-back love and peace and, 
and and, and none of the the glam that was all of this sophistication of um of of, of that that kind of sound wall of sound that Phil Spector was doing and made it into something fresh sounding yeah it was a huge hit it you know it it kind of was the result of a sort of a song that was pop bliss at the time yeah to the point that they had I think they had like a couple of other songs that were hits off that album but I mean to, not to anywhere near the degree because I can't even remember what they're called right yeah. I looked it up today and I didn't take notes of it but the point is they lived off that for a few years sure and then you know they'd gone on tours they were playing to 25,000 people in stadiums and then suddenly you know by 1969 um, they were very much seen as one hit wonder right and people had fallen out of love with them so they went from stadium shows down to playing lounge bars right and nightclubs with like a dozen people yeah. there like they were doing that to make ends meet. Mm. And so what they started to do after people weren't really showing up, it wasn't, you know, that exciting. They just started to chat on stage and joke with each other and, like, you know, chat with the band and just take the piss out of each other and things like this. Yeah. And what they didn't realise was a talent scout heard about this from CBS and went along and then spoke to them after the show and they were like, very surprised here as in I think you're amazing I want to give you your own TV show so they got their own variety show wow. which was the Sonny and Cher show and for the period of like you know 1971 to 74 it was one of the biggest shows in America mm. they were like absolute legends and it was a case of you know they'd sing covers of songs and and all of that I mean it was the the age of variety shows I think that kind yeah. of went on even into the 80s where it was just like sort of clinging on to that kind of concept sure. of a family TV show that doesn't really exist anymore, exist anymore. <laughs> but at the time at the time it was really popular but in the background of between 71 and 74 you know even though they were at the top of their game cracks started to appear walls began to crumble eyes began to wander mm-hmm. basically Sonny or as I wanted to call him Sonny Bon at one point. <laughs> Sonny Bon. <laughs> I don't know what went on oh, with my talking today. Uh, basically started to have affairs. Mm-hmm. And Cher would later say during the whole sort of divorce proceedings that um, stardom kind of made him a bit of a womaniser. Right. And that it wasn't a case of one woman or even five women would be enough. He was just like absolutely obsessed. Mm. So the show is a success. Their relationship's falling apart. She she gets the wake up call that she needs and thinks I I actually don't want to just be known as Sunny and Cher yeah I want to be known I for share. being Cher yeah and she started her solo career and it was it was a really interesting time for her because she had the challenge of trying to drop this kind of couple persona without you know the world really knowing at that stage that there was any problem right. And getting rid of the past kind of sort of comedic, hippie girl image yeah. that she sort of had. Sure. Um, I mean, she was sleek and glamorous. Don't get me wrong, she became a fashion icon throughout the Sunny and Cher period. But there, there was a lot that she wanted to, to leave behind and reinvent herself. And so during her first... sort, So her first single was called Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves which I don't know if you know that song. I do, I love that song. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, got, it's about outlaws and, and, and talks about certain issues. And she doesn't necessarily 
tackle those issues head on. But it was a very mature sound yeah. of a song and look for her, actually. And it was it was a great success. And that was followed by 1974. She then had um, the song Half Breed. And I felt this was a really brave song mm. for her to do. And I think it's quite a personal song. Even though it talks about kind of... Um, she says that, you know, my mother's people were ashamed of me. The Indians said I was white by law. So it was like about not being accepted by anyone. Yeah. Which I feel kind of reflects as in her dad rejected her. Didn't yeah. He didn't reject her. But he wasn't but he present. He kind right? of wasn't present. Yeah. He rejected everything. He yeah. was an addict. And and her mother was so different from her, but not really in, in the whole showcase, but she didn't feel that connection. It's, yeah, it's the idea of, yeah, not knowing yeah. where you belong, right? Not being sure of exactly, where, where your place is. Exactly. And so some of the lyrics like half breed, that's all I ever heard. Half breed, how I learned to hate the word. Because that's how she felt, obviously. She felt mixed. Yeah. In, in, in that in that sense. Both sides were against me since the day I was born. We never settled, we went from town to town, which was which was totally true of yeah. her childhood. Um and I like I say, I think it was an incredibly brave song and a very grown up yeah. um, perspective to have. And the way she presents it, um, even in like the music videos of her sat on this horse and she's literally in a bikini, but it's not and this is a th- great thing I love about Cher is that she can be scantily clad, but it is not about, ooh, I'm trying to be really sexy here. Sure. You're, she does it with power. Yeah, it feels empowering. Owns. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly what this song does and, and, and this video. The song was a massive success, anyway. And then her follow-up success was Dark Lady. Sorry, that was... Sorry, I said that was in 1973. The 1974 single was Dark Lady. Um, and by this point... You know, she'd, she'd filed for divorce. She couldn't live this separate life with him anymore. They were both seeing other people at, at this stage. She was seeing, I think, um, is it David Geffen of Geffen Records right. at that point, but then started seeing someone else. My fringe is doing something weird, I feel. I feel like you're having a moment. I don't know, it's, uh, I feel like I'm having a real frizz hair moment. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, so it was a complete media circus, very public thing not through necessarily their want and it was quite a bitter uh divorce proceedings that that happened and you know you know she accused Sonny of withholding you know her fair share of earnings and he took her to court for custody of their daughter chastity who'd been bought bought oh my god she hadn't been bought (laughs) she'd been born in 1969 when the pairs like kind of you know when they went into their kind of club lounge right. scene that's when they had their daughter um <laughs> jesus <laughs> the look that you're giving me oh right my now. god well no it's just like when they bought I their daughter myself. So could you imagine if that went out and i'm accusing her of buying a child <laughs> christ so i'll blaspheme instead yeah um perfect. anyway um in 1975, Cher launched her own variety TV show. She had huge guests like Jackson 5 and Tina Turner, which was one of the biggest personalities on TV. Did not know that. No, me neither. Um, anyway, so so she's had, she had one, two, three. Is this the third? I, I, she's got so many comebacks, right? <laughs> Let's just know she's the woman that just keeps coming back, but like not as like an old timer resurrecting their career, like as something completely new. Yeah. That's what I, I think of this. So she, in 1979, which we already know, is the greatest year of all time. Um, 
Mixed it on a number when of shows. Angela was born. Every show. There's Every so you know show. what I'm going to do a year, a year of podcasts. <laughs> the year I mean, of Angela. I'm going to do a podcast theme 1979 of all the great things that happened in music in that year because there were so many. I feel like you already sort of tried to do that, and that was when it all I went just... horribly wrong with the dates. <laughs> yep, but I can, I can. Uh, Try and try and do it again. It's different because there were so many things that happened that were great. I could I could do it again. Anyway, so in 1979, she entered the land of disco with the song "Take Me Home," that was later covered by Sophie Ellis Spexter. Oh. Take me home, take me home. Oh yes, I do yeah. recognise that. I only recognised it on the second "Take Me Home," but then I got it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, that was me trying to do Sophie Ellis Spexter badly. Um, but she had a top ten hit with that song and then was offered an incredible show like a kind of residency in vegas which she did from 1979 to 1982 although how i've written it as numbers is 19982 perfect <laughs> so uh, yeah she's still in the future <laughs> vegas right now she's just come back to do other comebacks literally. yeah i mean i wouldn't yeah. be that would that's the one thing that's missing right it's a bit of time travel we've like, not done that yet i wouldn't show. i wouldn't put it past her <laughs> um anyway so after this period she well just yeah after she finishes a vegas show she focuses on her film career and she does her first film and she talks about going to see the the trailer of it when she goes to a movie house with her sister and you know when they announce all the big names that are in in the film and then when you know people are clapping because that's what they used to do which is bizarre to me i can't imagine people going and seeing a trailer before seeing the actual film and and clapping at you know a trailer yeah, yeah. But anyway people did that back then do you want to know something bizarre that does so when I'll do that while I get us a beer from the fridge. Yeah, do that. So when I lived in India, going to the cinema there, I'm now, I'm doubting my memory if this is a real thing or not, or if I've somehow made it up. I'm pretty sure this is a thing. I might have to check it, and if I'm wrong, you might have to cut this out. (laughs) But, um... I'm, uh... I'm pretty sure in India, well, there's like an... There is definitely an intermission in the middle of films... And I feel like I, I remember there being something to do with like playing the national anthem at some point, like in the cinema as well. Oh God, could you imagine if you did that in this country? People would just be like, fuck off! Yeah. Which well, wouldn't happen. I know. But there is definitely an intermission in the middle of the film in India. And they, it's not like they try and put it in like a good place either. Like it's literally like halfway through the film, it just goes black. Although, although can, <laughs> can I say, right, so I went to see Mamma Mia in Soho years ago with Paula. And um, I think her mum might have been there as well. So I don't really... Yeah, anyway. But um, they played the national anthem. We were told to stand up. Really? And, and I just thought, Does, is this what happens yeah. at theatres? Really? I've yeah. never had that. But it was because the Queen Mum had just died. Oh. And there's an announcement. But there you go. Interesting. That was not that interesting. It was quite interesting. It's more interesting than some other stories you've told me today. Wow. Well, yeah. Um, I just have to keep like chucking them out and hope one sticks. Um, anyway, so she's she goes she goes to the movie house and they read out all these names or they're on screen, and then when her name comes up, people start laughing. Oh really? Yeah. Well, the thing is, what all of her TV stuff, she had this wit and humour, so mm. she was seen as being a bit of a a comedian. Yeah. Stroke trying to be a, a serious 
artist. Yeah. And and so her going into movies, people weren't quite convinced by yeah, it. Yeah, I guess you'd see it as a bit of a novelty but sort of thing, right? her first film, Silkwood, like, fucking take your laughter and shove it up your ass, <laughs> right? She smashed it out of the park. She was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe, which she won. Wow. She was incredible. And actually, I don't know if you've seen many of I her films. She's a great actress. I'm actually not sure if I've seen any films that she's in, if I'm being Fucking honest. Fucking hell. Right, we need, we're having a share night. A share Ser- movie night. Right, okay. So, a few other films then for you. So, in 1987, she was in the film Moonstruck and won Academy Award for that. You must have heard of The Witches of Eastwick. Yes. With Jack Nicholson. I've heard of it. I don't know that I've seen it. Oh, she's and mermaids you've not seen. Not seen she's so good. She was in burlesque. I, have, I haven't. As well. I haven't avoided it because she's in it. I just have happened not to have seen these films. She's in Mar- <laughs> anyway. Yeah. She's she's been in a lot of films and she's actually a, good a really good actress. Like it's not just you know someone saying as as a sort of music well, yeah, fan yeah, yeah. saying oh she she's she is an actress in her own right. Like yeah. forget the music stuff. She's a great actress mm-hmm. and the awards under a belt. Would, would suggest that that's... For sure. That, actually, winning awards isn't the old be-all and end or things, but... No, but it gives I us a certain amount yeah. of... Uh, I can't think of the right word. Credibility. Credibility, that's the word there I'm looking for. Anyway, back to music. Her next comeback, where she released her 19th studio album, mm-hmm. um, was in 1989, Hearthstone, absolute classic, If I Could Turn Back Time. Yes. was the big single of that. And she's on stage in her kind of like V yeah. shaped kind of like I don't know, it's not what would you even call it? I have no it's idea. It's like a swimsuit. It's, anyway. Leotard? Leotard. Is that thing. the right word? Yeah, I don't possibly, know. yeah, Leotard. And like leather jacket and big hair. And oh, she's incredible. She's incredible. Mm. Like, I mean, it's of its time. Yeah. Definitely. But it's an I mean, I, I'm classic. assuming that's your next stage outfit. Well, you've seen, you saw the hot pants, onesie, <laughs> the sequin hot pants. I'm, I'm sad that that's sort of been retired. I want it to come back out again. Well, it was because it was just so hot that summer, but then, <laughs> but then I got stung in the armpit by a bee, and then where the sequins were, it was just rubbing right into it. When I was playing um, uh, London Pride, and it was, it was, it was, it was a great show to play, but. I uh, there was there was a moment where there some was tears damage, damage was it done. It wasn't sweat. There were there were tears because <laughs> it was it was quite a painful show. Good that I'm not allergic to bee stings, bee stings yeah, that wasp be stings, or whatever it was. But it was just right before I went on stage, being stung. How the fuck do you get stung in the armpits? It's pretty impressive, to be fair. <sighs> Fucking hurt. <laughs> anyway, anyway, it was an absolute classic. She was electrifying in her performance, both live and recorded. Uh, where most artists, as they age through their career, they slow down, mm-hmm. they do more ballads, mm-hmm. ballads even, um, and, and become more known as heritage acts. She just becomes new. She's new and fresh. Queen of reinvention. Yeah, and winning fans across the board. Like, the amount of young fans that she's had every time she comes back, it's like she's a new pop act all yeah. over again. Because because she doesn't just stick with the tried and tested. Yeah. She she moves with music, right? Um, anyway, so she had a world tour that followed, spanning eight months, three continents. And by the time it ended, she'd developed chronic fatigue syndrome, 
which unfortunately for her at the time, doctors didn't really know that, that much about it. It was the same as like when she was a kid in dyslexia. It's almost like, you know, um, and like what Mari was saying about Kathleen Hanna, yeah. that, you know, misdiagnosis and she was just feeling so tired and, and people were saying, oh, it's your age. It's like, really? Yeah. You know, um, anyway, so it left her so exhausted that she didn't feel like she could even sustain music or a film career and she just needed a break. So fast forward to 1998, um, Sonny dies from injuries incurred while he hit a tree while skiing um, on holiday. Cher was devastated, but was totally criticised for her eulogy at the, oh, wedding, really? at the wedding, at the funeral. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> at the funeral. That wasn't even a note. That was me not... That, that's the thing. When I stopped reading, I just... My brain just puts, puts To be fair, words. you know what? In this heat, all is forgiven. <laughs> anyway, so the media were like, is it fate? She's about to relaunch her career. Is this, you know, she's just doing this to gain media attention. She totally wasn't. Like, one of the things that's for her is that that was her first love and the biggest love of her life that, that really shaped her mm. career through good and bad. Um... And apparently, you know, they had sort of reconciled in a way. When I say reconciled, as in, you know, they were on friendly terms. Yeah. Um, you know, they even reappeared at one point singing I've Got You, Babe, on a mm-hmm. TV show. It was just, you know, there was always going to be that love between them. Sure. But it would never work. And so when he died, she was absolutely devastated. And you you can you can see clips of her reading that um, eulogy, eulogy even. Oh, I can't speak. Whenever it's anything that's, like, serious... Or, you know, I just, it just turns into fucking comedy, doesn't it? Um, anyway, the point is, I think it's absolutely genuine, the thing she says, and it's heartbreaking. You can see her breaking yeah. while she's reading it. And I just think, how dare media people just, like, jump on this and accuse people of of, of stuff like that? So what did know? they accuse her of? Sorry. Well, it was because, you know, her comeback, like, she was releasing in the same year... Mm. A new album and all of this. So accused her of trying to use it to self-promote. Well, yeah, and right. you know, I just think, well, it's not self. How is that? Set, you no, know, yeah, I, yeah, I don't agree yeah, with that. I don't agree with it anyway. Um, so yeah, so anyway, that year, Cher once again has a comeback. This is her twenty-second album. Wow. At this point, um, and she's 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 a pioneer. Basically, she uses auto tuner and a vocoder. In the song I Believe, mm. which it became like one of the top 10 gay anthems of all time, and she won a Grammy for that song. And as I mentioned before, people, you know, most people as their careers age get slower in their staring, but not share. She sort of embraced new music and new technology, new ways of doing things. Okay, she wasn't the first to ever use no. a voco- vocoder, right? She wasn't. No. I'm not saying that. But this was the biggest pop song as a first to use this and the auto-tune, auto-correct yeah. aspect mm-hmm. in popular music in that way. Okay. Um, so, I mean, essentially, you know, there's there's a song fact that I found about this later um, that was like, so, you know, most of us are familiar with that song in 1998, believe, um, but what people don't know is that Cher disliked the track at first. She and the song's producer, Mark Taylor, fought over it continuously as it didn't sound, you know, up to par for either of them. But I couldn't quite work out why. Cher eventually stormed out the studio and gave up on the project. 
this is she sort of gave up on believe until she heard a young man using a vocoder on a British TV show. She had the idea to bring the vocoder into the studio to use for believe, and the rest is history. Mm. So you know it's and it, it is it's you know the amount of people that do impressions. If you believe in love, you <laughs> yeah. know. But then so many bloody artists use that. Yeah, of course it, they do. It's suddenly like, you know, after that song, it's then sort of became yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a staple. That's in, interesting, yeah. I, yeah. Never, I never realised that that song it, it was, was, the, was sort of a, a first for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, it was the introduction of that style um, of the song and it sort of redefined two decades of popular music using auto-tune in this incredibly widely sort mm. of weird way and the vocoder... And, and manipulating the voicing like that, you know, yeah, it yeah. was, yeah, it became like a really common thing to do, but it hadn't been before. I have to say, it's not something that I love in music, but <laughs> no, but it's that's... not something I'm necessarily I'm happy that became like a, a mainstream thing. No, I mean, that song sort of haunted me when I was traveling around Thailand, yeah. and it wasn't Cher singing it, it was like Thai people covering yeah. that song yeah, with yeah, yeah. vocoder. Um, <laughs> And it was it was played everywhere. It was yeah. like the song of my, and not necessarily a good thing sure. for me personally with that that song. But um, but yeah, so I suppose I want to end off with saying that you know I wanted to end on on that song because you know at this point I think she's like in her fifties. Yeah. And she's created like she's older than that. To- when did you say she was born? No, no, by this point. Oh, by this point, I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Not now. I was going to say. Um, no, but by this point, yeah. um, you know, she she's totally done what other people do not do when they come back yeah, yeah. at that age. For sure. Like Madonna, yes, has done has done this, but Cher is another one of those standout individuals mm-hmm. that, that just, you know, reinvents themselves without making it so much of a gimmick it's just they move with the times yeah and that's how it is it's like you know as, as we do as we age we don't stay as we were when we were in our teenagers no. to in our 20s and 30s and i think that should be the same as artists i don't understand why bands cling on to all oh, that's our sound we just need to keep regurgitating the same shit no just <laughs> yeah. move if you're a good songwriter or or in in this case with with artists that select songs and you can you've got an ear for that um you will have success, you know, but certainly just sticking, like what Phil Spector did, sticking with the sound is just never going to... It will eventually, yeah. Yeah, so so I suppose what I wanted to say tired. is that she adapted and moved to the times. Um, the song wasn't old school. It was futuristic. Even the way she looked was just like, wow, who is this creature that we, yeah. you know... It was completely new. It was infectious and it was a slice of sort of pop perfection I think she's awesome. She went on to have the most successful tour ever by a woman at the to- at that time, mm-hmm. earning 250 million. And this is all from a girl that was stage shy, insecure, abandoned by the people that were supposed to love her, dyslexic and unconforming. Yeah. Someone who discovered herself in probably what was one of the most traumatic Experiences, so you can hear panting. This is my dog in the background. I know, Lily, you've got a fur coat. It's hundred degrees. I think you should do your your new music pick next before okay. I, I launch into my. Uh... All right, all right. Let me get my notes up. So um, I'm gonna play a song called "Expo 67" by Crystal Furs from their album "Beautiful True." So here it is. Mm-hmm. 
So that was Crystal Furs with Expo 67 from the album Beautiful and True. Kerry thought I pronounced it differently and went, me, 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 me. I thought that you went Beautiful Truth, but I could have misheard you. I wanted to rename it. No, I think you're incorrect. <laughs> I said it correctly. But anyway, Crystal Furs is an indie pop band based in Portland, Oregon, made up of Steph on guitar, Kira on keys and Rowan on bass. And they make energetic, sonically layered indie pop tunes with emotionally charged lyrics. I just, I've just, honestly, I think it's so indie pop-tastic, their stuff. I just, I can't understand why they're not, they're not huge. 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 When I say huge, I mean, they're a lot bigger in the US than they are, they are here. And, you know, I just, I'm just hoping I can find a way to pay for them to come over and play Cro Cro Land because <laughs> I'd, I'd love them to it just... It would be amazing. Well, we've chatted online and, and stuff and I just want them to come and hang out at my house and, and for us to just play a festival together and, uh, yeah, live the dream. Let's make it happen. So, I'm going to talk about the Spice Girls. So I'm going to kind of talk about mostly the early part of how they formed and kind of their first successes and then I've just got some kind of like fun random facts that are going to be peppered in there throughout so um they formed in 1994 how old was i in 1994 angela 72 (laughs) the two part was right (laughs) (laughs) i was two when they formed in In... 1994 Ah. um so bob and chris herbert which i feel are very non non nondescript names but bob Bob and Chris Herbert of Heart Management um, decided that they were going to create a girl group to compete with the popular boy bands such as Take That and E17, which were kind of dominating the pop music scene at that time. So in order to do this, they placed an ad um, in Stage Magazine, and this is exactly what the ad said, okay? So it said, WANTED, capital letters. Are you, in letters, not spelt out, because this is how you communicate with the kids, right? So are you... 18 to 23, with the ability to sing slash dance. Once again, are you, in letters, streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated. Heart Management Limited are a widely successful music industry management consortium currently forming a choreographed, singing slash dancing, all-female pop act for a recording deal. Open audition, dance works, and then there's the, you know, the time and the address and stuff, which isn't that interesting. Please bring sheet music or backing cassettes. So about 400 women answered that ad, okay? Which I felt like was quite a lot. That is quite a lot. But then I was like trying to put it in context for myself. I suppose there's a lot of different factors, but then I was thinking just out of interest for like X Factor, which is kind of like where all of this has led to, right? Like this was like the first sort of time, I think really that, not the first time that this idea happened. No, 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 no. Well, girl groups been formed and boy bands in similar ways for for years and... uh, yeah. Fair enough. Well, anyway. But it, still. But X Factor is like the yeah. more recent version of, of where but, this is all of this has led, right? But the Spice Girls in general was quite a unique... Yeah, sure. you, you get on with it. Yeah. On. So, <laughs> just, so, so just to just compare, because there were 400 people who answered that ad, but then I was just interested to compare it to something like X Factor and how many people like apply for, for X Factor these days. So for the first series of X Factor, over 50,000 people auditioned. How do you even audition that amount of 50, people? 50,000 people auditioned. Third series, 100,000 people auditioned. How? The sixth series, 200,000 people auditioned. I mean, do they audition people like five years in advance? I have like, no idea. 
but do well they do it they did they did them like all over the country didn't yeah, they and that, yeah but still that's still mad is it? i think there's just people in and out just yeah, I, I know but like even even to get for a, f- a couple of hundred people like literally in and out like don't get me wrong 100 percent wikipedia facts cannot totally vouch for them but, but these are the facts that true. i found <laughs> um so just this is just a random fact but um Jerry Halliwell saw the ad um, but went skiing in Spain and actually missed the first audition because her face got sunburnt and she felt it wouldn't be good to show up with a red sunburnt face but then managed to like call and like get herself onto the second audition anyway. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) When you said skiing in Spain, I just imagine she just like... That's a really good point that I hadn't really thought about. When the name of her showed up, and it's like blistering heat, <laughs> she's of a skiing gear. It's like, oh. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure there are mountains in Spain, but no, I, I, I totally, know, I totally I know, see what you mean. It just, went, it doesn't immediately like, and then with the summer thing, but you do definitely get. Then it was like she bought skiing. a water skiing holiday before <laughs> it was something else. But yeah. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so she she missed the first audition because she was sunburned. Um, so the band, they were originally called Touch. That's a terrible... Which is a terrible, terrible, terrible band name. <laughs> um, which then thankfully got initially changed um, when one of the first songs that they recorded was called Sugar and Spice. And Jerry Halliwell had the idea from that to call themselves Spice. So at this point, it was just spice. And then they realised that that was like a which is also terrible. Um, And then, so yeah, so they, you know, they sort of they obviously all went through these rounds of auditions, Mm. got chosen by uh, by the guys from Heart, um, who was going to be in the band. There were a couple of changes as well, like somebody um, there was somebody who made it through the auditions, but then she got kicked out and replaced with Emma Bunton. so they formed twice and then they, you know, were getting materials together and everything, but they were growing kind of frustrated with the direction that heart management was steering them in. Um, and so in October 1994, they had like a whole catalogue of demos and dance routines and they started touring different management agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually persuaded Bob Herbert of Heart to set up a showcase performance for them in front of industry writers, producers and A&R men in December of 1994. So yeah, so when they started to see the the positive reaction that they were getting from, um, you know, other management agencies and A and R people and all of this stuff, they realised that they needed to try and kind of get them locked down and went about trying to get a binding contract created for them. But equally, the bands were encouraged by the reaction that they received, and so they delayed signing the contract with legal advice that they were getting from, you know, their parents and and people that they knew around them Mm. um and so in march 1995 they actually parted from heart management who sort of you know brought them together and created Mm. them um because they were just frustrated with the company's unwillingness to like listen to their visions and their ideas um and so to ensure also allegedly to ensure that they kept control of their own work they apparently stole the master recordings of their discography from the from the management offices as well um, but what I found interesting about that is just that they quite very, very early on, before they were anything, mm. sort of really tried to take control, actually, of what they were doing. So I always sort of saw them as this band that were just created as this sort of brand and this marketing thing, which they sort of were, but they, they did actually take a certain amount of control of it yeah. for themselves, actually, very early on. 
and split pretty much immediately before they'd even really done anything from the management co- company that created them, which I just thought was quite yeah. interesting. Um, so in March of 1995, um, Simon Fuller of 19 Entertainment signed them to his company um, and he managed them. Um, and during the summer of that year, they toured record labels in London and LA um, with Fuller and um, eventually ended up signing a, deal with Vir- signing a deal with Virgin Records in September of 1995. And at that point, their name changed to the Spice Girls um, because there was a rapper who was already using the name Spice. <laughs> <laughs> so it became the Spice Girls. Um, so they released their debut single, Wannabe, in mm-hmm. 1996. And it was a number one hit in how many countries? Do you do you want to guess? A hit? So it was a number one hit in how many countries? 27. Really close. 37. Uh-uh. But you got the seven part, right? I win. On it with the second digits. <laughs> <laughs> If in doubt, Angela wins. Um, so it was a hit in 37 countries. When it, So it was it was first released in the UK, obviously, in 1996. Mm-hmm. It wasn't released in the US until January of 1997. Um, and uh, it kind of proved to be the catalyst of helping them break into what was sort of a notoriously difficult US market to break into at the time. Mm-hmm. And it debuted at number 11 in the Hot 100 chart. Um, which at the time was the highest ever debut by a non-American act, beating the previous record, which was held by the Beatles for I Want to Hold Your Hand. Jesus. I mean, I knew I knew there was this thing as in, like, they're the biggest band since Beatles. Well, I just thought it was interesting. But I didn't know that that was, an, like, a real well, actual thing. Yeah, so in the US, they beat the, the, the chart entry right level, which yeah. is just a small thing, I suppose. But I also just thought it was crazy that there hadn't been a non-American act um, that got that high up in the charts since the Beatles. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. As in, it doesn't matter if it's like a small... That's still an incredible thing. Well, But also I'm doing the length of time, right? Well, yeah, Between well, no, those no but that's what I'm saying. It's an incredible thing. <laughs> and it was done by... I feel by, like we're agreeing, but we think well, we're, we're arguing. we're agreeing, but we're going to argue. <laughs> we're going to glass each other in the this face. This classic. Um, no, no. I, but, like, it's incredible. But also, you know... It was done by a group of, of women. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, random fact, which I find amusing. The wannabe video was banned in some parts of Asia. Why? Why do you reckon? Can you think of anything in that video that might... Because it was too sexy. Because, because of Mel B's erect nipples. <laughs> oh, for the... I'm going to see this now. It's like... So, yeah. Really? Apparently. In every episode, there's like some ridiculous story. Ridiculous censorship, some right? Fucking numpt. Like someone is being paid. I, thought I keep finding them because I find it fascinating. Someone's being paid to just, you know, they're doing it for the sake of it, aren't they? Just it's going to just find a job. Oh, Can you imagine they watch it? Oh, can't be. Can't have people seeing their nipples. Just poking, poking through the clothes. <laughs> I've now got a vision of like comedy version of like Madonna like, like, like metal really exactly. breaking out. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, random fact. Um, so um, their debut album Spice um, then sold more than thirty million copies worldwide, becoming the best-selling album by a female group in history. Wow. Um, they sold. They have sold over eighty million records worldwide making them the best-selling female group of all time, one of the best-selling pop groups of all time, and the 
basically the biggest British pop phenomenon since the since Beatlemania, and the press even dubbed it like Spice Mania at the time. Well, they did they did film as well, didn't they? Did yeah. they do they do did two mm. films? Didn't Literally they? the next the next oh, point oh, shut up. released in December of 1997 was Spice World the movie, um, which was a massive hit at the box office. Uh, it broke the record for the highest ever weekend debut. I feel like this is quite a specific record, but broke the record for the highest ever weekend debut for Super Bowl weekend. <laughs> That's just a shit thing. It's a very specific they broke one, for, right? for the first five minutes of the door opening. Yeah. the number of people that walked through it. Exactly. Um, yeah. so that was 25th of January in 1998 in the US. Banging film. I remember watching it as a well, kid. Well, even I, and, and I wasn't it. even a fan of the Spice yeah. Girls. Well, I remember even such an entertaining film. Even going to to see it, but the, I suppose the point is that the connection of like you know the Beatles and Hard Days Night and yeah. the Spice Girls doing their movie and 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 the I think we mentioned um, I mentioned on another podcast episode of the sheer power of advertising and music and how yeah. the Spice Girls did that deal with Pepsi yeah and were paid like an extravagant amount of money which five million yeah. For, for an advert. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you piped in the, the five minutes. I was going to go. It's like it's, more it's, it's than in, was spent on any movie <laughs> it's ever. In, it's in my next point. But okay. before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, how how much do you think the box office sales were for the film? 100 billion. No. Um, for how long of a period? Well, yeah. I don't have that. I don't. I don't now, yeah, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. Um, well, I guess well, it, well, it was. Well, I suppose it was how it broke the record. So it's the number I've got. I suppose it's for the highest ever weekend de- debut. I've got no idea. Like, I don't know. If, oh, I'm going to say just because shares it's number in, of it's her it, concert it's, is two hundred and fifty million. Okay, it's so not. It's I'm not gonna, that much. So, so yeah. Well, I was going to say. So I'm just going to say that, which sounds ridiculous. It's, it is, is in the millions, but it's not. It's not in in the hundreds of millions. Like a. Like a Euro Millions pop. <laughs> is, it, is it like a... Shall I just tell you what yeah, it is? Yeah, just tell me. $10,527,222. That's all right, isn't it? I mean, for what it is, right? Like, yeah. it's not... I mean, it's not a... I mean, I say it's a bagging movie. It's not actually a particularly good film, right? But it's a very entertaining film. And for what it was, like... I remember quite a lot about it from watching it as a kid, and I don't remember movies really. <laughs> was it like a kind of a vaguely remember? Is it almost like a kind of Charlie's Angels type? Yeah, a little thing bit. Thing of a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and they've got this tour bus. Yeah, there's like the famous bit right where the bus jumps over the. I don't even remember bridge. That. It's such a famous like the bridge. Bit. Like the I can't remember which bridge the, the it is. London Bridge. Yeah, London Bridge yeah. is like going up, and it like I might bet it's not in the film, but I just made that up. But I'm sure that that happens in the film. <laughs> Sounds like something. This is where I just I do not trust my own memory. Have you noticed that? That's the second time I've been like, I think that this is a thing I remember, but now that I'm saying it out loud (laughs) on a podcast, I'm suddenly terrified that I've totally made it up. Um so yeah, so going on to like the so then there was the movie and then the Pepsi thing, they sort of became the most success one of the most like successful marketing engines ever. Um earning up to seventy five million dollars a year um with their Global gross income estimated at five hundred to eight hundred million from May nineteen ninety eight. Oh, by sorry, by May nineteen ninety eight. Um, so from nineteen ninety seven, they were capitalizing on their fame through, um, you know, a multi million dollar phenomenon of merchandise, um, with official products including Chupa Chups, 
Walker's Crisps, Cadbury's Chocolate, Polaroid, Impulse Deodorant. I feel like I can remember having Spice Girls Deodorant. Um, I can't even say that word. Aprilia, Aprilia Scooters. Whatever. Some sort of scooter. Domino Sugar, Spice Girls Dolls, yeah. a PlayStation game. I don't remember the Spice Girls PlayStation game. I don't remember a game. I remember the dolls. I do remember the dolls. I don't think I ever had any, though. I don't think I went to that level it was a bit of having old. Spice Girls dolls. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I definitely didn't um, have Spice Girls dolls. And, yeah, they had sponsorship with Asda, Channel 5, and then the famously Pepsi as well. Well, there was the whole thing with them, that they knew that they didn't write the songs, right? They didn't. No. And um, uh, I think they the sort Pepsi of, I, well, deal... I think they did, like, Wannabe, they're, they're credited with being involved in writing. I only have the was fact... was it Look, okay, all right. Anyway, they, but they no, I, for, them, some, for the most part, I agree. I just, I remember the thing that them saying is in that the only way that they were really going to make any real money out of being in the Spice right. Girls was by all of the endorsement deals that they did, and sure. they were very kind of business savvy within that. Whereas, like, if you look at a, a, a band like S Club Seven group, um, that was incredibly successful for a period of time as a pop group. But by the time that group ended, they were pretty much all bankrupt. So they didn't sure. really make any money because they were like performance artists. Yeah. Perform- that makes it performance artists. <laughs> <laughs> They're cutting themselves and <laughs> crying. And, no, they, they were like kind of, they, they were performers yeah. and paid as well, a session. Well, yeah, well, space. this is what I wanted to sort of get into with this is that I, I feel like it's such, it's kind of the most successful example of what has become super common now with all of these shows like X Factor and everything and you know S Club 7 Hearsay that was came out of Pop Idols and One Direction and everything where it's not really I don't really feel like it's about the music it's just about the brand it's about this thing that some exec feels that they can market and they can sell and they can make merchandise out of and they can sell it to teenagers and I feel like the music almost becomes irrelevant in a way like I'm putting my hand up right now because I just googled it and I suppose this is the misconception that most people have because they're like a pop group I I'm gonna do my own correction corner immediately um the Spice Girls were fully involved well, yeah that's was in the impression I got all the songs yeah, which they were I involved. never got that impression I think that yeah I think what I learned from doing this research was that I should give them a bit more credit than maybe well, I did I think I in, ge- well. in, in general for having a lot more control over what was happening than I thought because I did totally see them as just this band that were you know from just the little I knew um as this band that were just created and marketed and put out there but actually they played quite a big part in all the decisions and and the writing and what they did yeah no 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 that's yeah i like literally i never knew that like yeah. i've been completely enlightened by this i thought it was a genius marketing concept that they had roles in the management of their career and made really smart decisions yeah. as business people but i really didn't think they wrote anything and yeah. now and now i know they did but no if they there were you go. yeah coming at it from all sides but the whole branding of them as individuals, right, with the whole, like, baby, scary, posh, ginger, sporty thing, um, wasn't them that created that, actually. Oh my God, it's that a bottle of wine that's coming out. I haven't even finished the beer yet. Gone from well, Prosecco to beer to wine. This isn't going to end well. Is, a bottle of Prosecco... Doesn't count. And this is fact. A bottle of Prosecco, you can drink a bottle of Prosecco 
It's like drinking a glass. That actually makes me sound like an. Like, <laughs> it's like drinking a glass of water, road. isn't it? So, <laughs> no, but it just it doesn't feel like you've drunk a bottle of wine, does no, it? No, it doesn't. Anyway, as I was saying, um, so they're sort of like individual branding of like baby, scary, posh, ginger, mm-hmm. sporty. Was not something they come up. They came up with. Was not something that Simon Fuller came up with. It was actually in 1996. Top of the Pops magazine came up with that idea. What? Yeah. Really? Top of the Pops magazine um, gave, basically gave each member of the group aliases. So it was top of the. It was top of the Pops no magazine that, that basically gave the. I mean, this is 1996. So this is the no, very but, beginning. Okay, of, okay. But the names of them, but the personas. Well, no. It all there. sort of came together, didn't it? So. I sp- oh, no, so I think I think the I think the personas were sort of there, right? Yeah. The the idea of giving the names and the branding in that way came yeah. from Top of the Pops magazine based on the way that they sort of presented, but then I think it then became exaggerated once they had yeah. the names in place, if that makes sense. They should have I don't know, sold them that. There was idea. a long there was a longer I should have there was a longer thing about how the decisions were made and based on what aspects of their personality that I couldn't be bothered to read out so I didn't copy and paste it in my notes. But, but it was a genius concept yeah. though. Because actually all they did was exaggerate things that had existed previously. Like even if you look at boy bands, there's always like without even saying it, yeah. there's always like the the cute, young, innocent yeah, one. There's yeah, the yeah. bad For boy. Sure. There's sure. the, the deep kind of fucking the so songwriter. Definitely. So it definitely one, just yeah. took that idea, didn't it? But take it, took it to the next level. Yeah. And I remember when I was a kid, we all were. We all, knew, like what, we all, we all knew what Spice Girl we were. Have you, seen, have you seen the L word? I have seen the L yeah, word. Is, yeah, exactly. It's just like that. As yeah. Well, something. <laughs> yeah. Which Spice Girl were you? Did you identify as a Spice Girl? I, I didn't. Did you not? Identify as a Spice Girl. Wait, which Spice Girl do you think I identified as? I feel like there are two possibilities of what you're going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> just... oh, exactly. That's one of them. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd probably say scary just because you're quite bubbly and out there. I wasn't as a kid, though. No, I was I was a tomboy. So I was Sporty Spice. Mm. Moving on. So, um, so they the group performed "Who Do You Think You Are" to open the 1997 Brit Awards with Jerry Halliwell wearing the famous Union Jack mini dress, um, and that dress became one of pop history's most famed outfits. It was sold at a charity auction to Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas for how much money do you think? And this is the Guinness World Record for the most expensive piece of pop star clothing ever sold. I mean, she did have fabulous outfits. So how much do you think it sold for? Um, it's got to be over a million, isn't no, it? No, it's not. Oh. It's, in ten, just, it's in tens of thousands. I, I'm just disappointing, aren't I? I'm just you like, ah, oh, it's a bit... No. Okay. To be fair, I, you always ask me these sorts of questions and I hate Ch- it. So chari- I'm just charity it shop, £2.50. No. Um, Somewhere in the middle. £2.50 <laughs> <laughs> or a I million? Told, I told you, it's tens um, of thousands. I don't know. Go on. That's the that's a narrow enough goal. Between ten and a hundred thousand. Give me a number. Sixty-five thousand. Sixty-eight thousand dollars. So approximately forty-one thousand three hundred twenty pounds. So also speaking of that Union Jack dress, did you know it was actually made of um, a boring black Gucci dress, right? Which obviously I mean it's Gucci, so it was an expensive dress, but that. Jerry Halliwell felt was was boring, which she was originally supposed to wear, um, and she didn't feel comfortable with wearing it, 
So she said, I've got a much better idea. So she said this to her stylist. I've got a much better idea. I'm going round to my sister's. She's got these great Union Jack tea towels. I'm going to make a dress. So it was a tea towel. It was her sister's tea towel that she turned into a dress oh and wore God. over the Gucci dress that I've she was supposed now to wear. <laughs> got such a brand new family. How cool is that? For, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then it sold for $68,000. Tea towel. Oh, there you go. Absolutely amazing. Um, getting kind of into a couple of random facts now that made me laugh. Um, so they performed um, for royalty um, and they sort of breached royal protocol when Mel B and Jerry Halliwell planted kisses on Prince Charles' cheeks and pinched his bottom, <laughs> which caused some controversy. <laughs> and they also met Nelson Mandela, um, yeah. who called them his heroes. Nelson Mandela, big fan of the Spice Girls. Well, I sort of wanted to finish on talking about the sort of the whole girl power sort yeah. of mantra um of what they did and do you know where the inspiration for that sort of girl power mantra came from according to them at least well i don't know where calling from them where it came from but originally girl power was was a right girl thing that was um created back back then so i don't I, i don't know well i don't know i think i feel like the girl power kind of idea that they identified with Eating your dinner loudly, like I gave that to you at seven. Do you not know it's bad to eat before you go to bed, Lily? I feel like the sort of the girl power aspect of what they did was a bit different to the the riot girl sort of girl power mantra, if that makes sense. Um, It was like the sort of this newer wave feminism that was all about how you can be very feminine and very like, you know, and wear heels and wear short dresses and do all of that and still be a feminist was sort of the whole idea of it, wasn't it? So, anyway, so specifically what they cited as being where they sort of got the inspiration for it um, was from the British pop duo Shampoo's 1996 single and album, um, which was called Girl Power. Oh, yeah, and they had that song... Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Someone's exactly. come along and I burst a bubble. Uh-oh. Exactly, because I was like, I don't know who these who the, who Shampoo are. And so I was like, while doing my research, stuck it on in the background. I was like, oh my God, I totally know who they are. And I was like, I know all of their songs. I just never really knew that it was them. And then, yeah, I, I, I literally, because I was like, in case you don't know who I'm talking about, because I didn't know, I had it in brackets, uh-oh, we're in trouble, ready to sing it, to show you what I meant, but you went straight <laughs> for it, so that was great. <laughs> um, the sort of, the focused and consistent presentation of the girl power thing kind of formed the centrepiece of their appeal as a band in a lot of ways. Um, and some commentators saw this as sort of reinvigorating mainstream feminism, um, which was popularised as girl power in the 90s. Um, and it sort of served as a gateway to feminism for some young fans, you know, for kind of younger girls and teenagers. Yeah. But then on the other hand, they also got criticism um, from people who sort of dismissed it as sort of nothing more than just a shallow marketing tactic. Um, and others took issue with sort of the emphasis on physical appearance um, concerned about the potential impact of self-conscious or impressionable youngsters. But I think that you've totally, what with what you said, showed the opposite of that. Do you know what I mean? With well, I, should, I, I think 
that there's a great deal of people judging each other on really superficial things. It shouldn't matter what you wear. No. How you speak. Where you're from. None of those things should matter. We're all people and we deserve respect. And feminism is ultimately about believing that women deserve respect and equal opportunities. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that with the Spice Girls as well, you could also argue, due to the way they sort of presented with these different personalities, I think they actually did show different ways of of dressing and it wasn't trying to suggest there was only one way to, to dress and to look. And I think they all had quite different looks in a lot of ways, you know? And I think that, if anything, that was a good thing, if that makes sense. And I don't think that they were trying to say there's just one way to look and to be feminine. And so I think they were actually presenting some quite a lot of different ways to look. Yeah, I think so as well. And um, the fact that there, there were a lot of, you know, I think majority of their fans were women. So the, the kind of argument about that it was like a boys thing is, yeah. is kind of out the window on that. Um, um, so yeah, so I mean, basically the... You know, the Spice Girls broke onto the music scene at a time when actually alternative rock, hip-hop and R&B were dominating the the global music charts. It was sort of just such a modern pop phenomenon um, that they created by targeting early members of Generation Y. Um, And, you know, they were really discredited with changing the global music landscape um, and bringing about the global wave of late 1990s and early 2000s teen pop acts such as Hanson, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera and NSYNC, you know, all sort of happened in their wake. So, yeah, so, you know, it was a massive commercial breakthrough that they had in a previously male-dominated pop music scene and it led to the widespread formation of new girl groups in the late 90s and early 2000s, including All Saints, Bewitched, Atomic Kitten, Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes. Um, who were all sort of hoping to emulate the Spice Girls' success. Um, And artists, even up until today, cite them as a massive influence from people like Lady Gaga, Jess Glynn, Adele, all sort of, you know, have said in interviews that the Spice Girls were a massive influence for them. Um, So somebody who I know dearly loves and was also sort of influenced by the Spice Girls is Jessie from Scarlet. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, she's, oh, she's a She's such fan. a sweetheart. When uh, when we were doing our training for our job, there were four, there were four of us girls who were training amongst, there were, what, I think maybe 15 or so people training for the job and four of us were girls and so Jessie decided that we should be the Spice Girls and we each had to have a Spice Girl personality and so on. Um, but um, anyway, that was why I really wanted to play Scarlet today because I was talking okay. about the Spice Girls. Um, so Scarlet are a four-piece female-led grunge pop alt-rock band hailing from the northwest of England. Um, the song that I'm going to play today is called Friends, um, which was released uh, at the end of April earlier this year. Um, so the song and the music video um, are dedicated to the NHS, um, the frontline heroes and everyone feeling alone in isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic to spread a message of hope and positivity. Because obviously it came out very much in yeah, no, no, the no, very lock, height of lockdown. Yeah, yeah. So the message is very much like, you're not alone in feeling alone. We're all in this together. We're all alone together at the same time, which means none of us are alone at all. We stand united and we send all the love to everyone out there. So this is Friends by Scarlet. <laughs>
so that was Friends by Scarlet. Um, and that song has been has had loads of radio play from the likes of like BBC introducing Amazing Radio. Um, it's done really well for them. And um, you know during lockdown they've played some really great live stream shows um, for the likes of Sofathon Sing Along in support of the Music Venue Trust and Jägermeister and Benumu that we did as well. Yep. Um, and uh, I heard a rumor that they may be announcing a new release very soon. So um, keep your ears and eyes peeled for that because after this song, I'm super excited to hear what they're going to come out with next. You can find them um, on social media with under Scarlet Band UK in all of the places and we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes as well. So make sure you follow them on there so that you are the first to hear what's going on with this new release because I reckon it's going to be big. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, email us at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. If you don't want to get in touch, then obviously don't. Um, <laughs> just don't. Just, just don't. don't why why don't are you even you listening? Don't worry about it. Go away. Don't listen. Chill out. Exactly. Um, or, you know, Bug Eye Band on Twitter or Bug Eye Music on Facebook. They're our handles. But what I wanted to mention was a couple of podcasts that I've been had my attention drawn to so joe caulfield who was guest on our show listened to our charles manson episode and we love joe caulfield we love her and we've stayed in touch and um she's absolutely fantastic but she just recommended a show to me called you must remember this and they've got a few episodes about charles manson it's called hollywood part one what we talk about when we talk about charles manson murders it is so fantastic. Like the production level is incredible. Mm. And then also I had another podcast um, follow me on Twitter today. And I just thought, I what's this all about? What's all this about? What's this all about? Um, well, no, I did. I did think that. I was like, well, who are you? What, what the hell? And I'm just trying to look for it now. They're called Ir- The Irrationally Exuberant podcast mm, i like that name i love it because i struggle to pronounce it um and i said oh i'm gonna listen to it and i did <laughs> that's good immediately and they they did an episode a recent episode of about an artist called tiny tim who i had never heard of before so neither had i until I posted those ukulele videos, right, during lockdown and yeah. some, somebody commented on it about him and I went to look into him and he, I found him terrifying. <laughs> well, the whole podcast, um, I mean, it starts, I mean, it starts off with this whole thing of trying to resurrect Tiny Tim's career and, and them doing like a lookalike contest. Oh my God. And no one enters, <laughs> right, which is fucking brilliant. Yeah. And just to be honest, it's like the description of him and the storytelling he in this is a podcast. Human. No, no, but like the fact is, they managed to keep their episodes to like thirty minutes, which we're no good at. And the huge amount of detail and storytelling in there is is fantastic. Yeah. And the production is great. And I'm now binging past episodes of this podcast, and I highly recommend. What was it you called check again? It out. The Irrationally Exuberant Podcast. The Irrationally Exuberant Podcast. Yeah. And uh, on Twitter, if you it's Exuberant Pod, cool. if you want to find them. 
This is the end, my only friend, the end. The doors. You know that song? I wanted you to just stop there and that's okay. to be where we end the 